You are listening to audio from Creekside Community Church. If you'd like to learn more about Creekside, find out about our services and upcoming events, or listen to other sermons, please visit creeksidecommunity.org. Good to see all of you today. Mark is a SEAL Team 6, and I think that's, that, that heart resides in some of you. And so if you're kind of a adventurer for Jesus, this is a great adventure to go on. I really encourage you. It'll be, it'll be a great time, right? And, and, and your life has never been in danger, except for that. Well, anyway. <laughs> anyway, I pray, pray about this. We are uh, going to complete the story of Esther today with the establishment of the Jewish holiday of Purim. And uh, Back in the Law of Moses, God commanded the Jews to celebrate three annual feasts. Passover, which celebrated his deliverance of them from 400 years of slavery in Egypt. The Feast of Weeks, or Pentecost, which was celebrated 50 days after Passover, celebrated the the first fruits of the wheat harvest. And then the Feast of Booths, which celebrated God guiding them through the wilderness to the promised land. So these three feasts were celebrated every year by Israel. A thousand years later, Mordecai and Esther add a fourth feast, which is the Feast of Purim, which is still celebrated today. Uh, What I hope to be able to show you today is that if we will celebrate what Purim celebrates, It'll change our lives. So let's, uh, let's pray, and then we're going to jump back into Esther. Father, it is a, a holy moment when we open your word and hear you speak to us. We pray that you will give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to believe and obey, that we might know you better and might experience your joy, and our joy will be made full. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, I just want to finish the book of Esther this morning, and then I want to talk about three practical ways I see this last chapter applying to our lives. So let's jump in. Now, in the 12th month, that is the month of Adar, on the 13th day when the king's command and edict were about to be executed, On the day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, it was turned to the contrary, so that the Jews themselves gained mastery over those who hated them. The month of Adar, the 13th day, was the day that had been set by Haman to exterminate all of the Jews from Persia, which would be all the Jews in the world. God is never mentioned by name in the book of Esther. It's the only book in the Bible where God is never mentioned, and yet his invisible hand is seen throughout the book. And the whole story is how God stops Haman's plan. And, and his, his hand is seen in coincidences and reversals of fortune, all the way through. I mean, who would have thought that the most powerful woman in the world, Vashti, the queen of Persia, would be replaced by this young commoner, 
Jewish woman named Esther who outfoxes Haman, and Haman dies on the very gallows he planned to kill uh, Esther's guardian, Mordecai. And Mordecai not only receives all of Haman's property as a result, but receives his position as prime minister. And then because he's prime minister, he and Esther craft this other edict that basically nullifies the edict that Haman had sent. And that's what happens here. He says, can we go back to the first slide, please? Notice it says, it was turned to the contrary. That, that's really the theme of Esther. Over and over again, what you expect to happen doesn't happen. Esther and Mordecai issue a decree that on the 13th day of Adar, all the Jews in the Persian, in the Persian Empire can defend themselves against anyone who attacks them. And not only that, but the civil government has to come in on their side. That's, that's what happens. So let's read on. The Jews assembled in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand before them, for the dread of them had fallen on all the peoples. Even all the princes of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and those who were doing the king's business assisted the Jews because the dread of Mordecai had fallen on them. Indeed, Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces, for the man Mordecai became greater and greater. You have to remember that the people the Jews are killing are people who are attacking them. The Jews, are, this is just self-defense. And the local government, out of respect for the prime minister, Mordecai, are helping the Jews in this. So the Jews have, where they were supposed to be exterminated, suddenly are raised up as the kind of the most powerful people in the empire. Thus the Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying, and they did what they pleased to those who hated them. At the citadel in Susa, remember Susa is the capital of the Persian Empire, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men and a whole bunch of guys. The, the, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Jews' enemies, but they did not lay hands on the plunder. In Susa, as an example of what's going on throughout the whole empire, 500 people are killed. Now remember, this is self-defense. These are 500 people who attack the Jews. And the Jews don't do what is customary of taking their property because they want to make it real clear that this is not a war of revenge. It is not a war to profit themselves. They are simply defending themselves. On that day, the number of those who were killed at the citadel in Susa was reported to the king. Since it's local, he gets the news right away of what happened in his city. The king said to Queen Esther, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and the 10 sons of Haman at the citadel in Susa. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? I, I wonder what's happening in the rest of the 127 provinces if 500 people were killed here. Now, what is your petition? It shall be granted, even granted you. And what is your further request? It shall be done. Xerxes doesn't love the Jews, but he does love Esther. 
And so he says, is there anything else I can do for you? And Esther says, then said Esther, if it pleases the king, let tomorrow also be granted to the Jews who are in Susa to do according to the edict of today and let Haman's ten sons be hanged on the gallows. Esther asked for two things. Apparently in Susa, there are still enemies of the Jews. So she asked, can we have an extra day to go after the people that hate us? And secondly, even though Haman's ten sons were killed the day before, hanging a corpse in public was a warning against anyone who would, who would attack the Jews. So she asked for that to happen too. So the king commanded that it should be done, and an edict was issued in Susa, and Haman's ten sons were hanged. Their bodies were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa assembled also on the 14th day of the month of Adar and killed 300 men in Susa, but they did not lay hands on their plunder. So this is what happens locally. This is what, what goes on in Susa. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces assembled to defend their lives and, and rid themselves of their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they did not lay hands on the plunder. So if there's 127 provinces, that means about average 600 people got killed in each province in this, this big civil disturbance. So it wasn't just Haman who hated Jews. Anti-Semitism was rife throughout the whole Persian Empire, as it is, it is in this world today. And so there were a lot of enemies of the Jews who attacked them. The Jews defended themselves again. They did not take what belonged to the people they killed. This is simply self-defense. So this kind of gives you a, uh, this is laying a basis for how Purim was actually established. It's on the 13th of Adar, but it's also celebrated on the 14th because in Susa, they got an extra day. That's kind of the point, okay? You with me here? All right. This was done on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day, they rested and made it a day of feasting and rejoicing. But the Jews who were in Susa assembled on the 13th and 14th of the same month, and they rested on the 15th day and made it a day of feasting and rejoicing. Therefore, the Jews of the rural areas who live in the rural towns make the 14th day of the month of Adar a holiday for rejoicing and feasting and sending portions of food to one another. Then Mordecai recorded all these events, and he sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to celebrate the 14th day of the month of Adar and the 15th day of the same month annually, because on those days the Jews rid themselves of their enemies, and it was a month which turned for them from sorrow into gladness, from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and rejoicing and sending portions of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So originally, Purim was two days because of what happens in, in Susan, but today Purim is typically uh, celebrated on the 13th just on one day. That's kind of the, the whole point here. We're going to get to the practical value of this in just a minute, by the way. Thus the Jews undertook what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them for Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agite, the adversary of all the Jews, had schemed against the Jews to destroy them and had cast pur, that is the lot, to disturb and destroy them. Remember, uh, Haman, in, in designating the day that would be decreed that it was open season on Jews, 
threw dice and came up with the 13th of Adar. That's the word per. And Purim is a plural of per, which means two days that, to celebrate this. But when it came to the king's attention, he commanded by letter that his wicked scheme, which he had devised against the Jews, should return on his own head, and that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they called these days Purim after they of Pur. So this is kind of a summary of the whole story of Esther, right? Haman wants to kill every Jew in the world. God turns the plans, and it ends in a great holiday that's still celebrated today. And because of the instructions in this letter, both what they had seen in this regard and what had happened to them, the Jews established and made a custom for themselves and for their descendants and for all who allied themselves with them so that they would not fail to celebrate these two days according to their regulation, according to their appointed time annually. So these days were to be remembered and celebrated throughout all, every generation, every family, every province, and every city. And these days of Purim were not to fail from among the Jews or their memory fade from their descendants. So all this chapter, what's the point? Here's why Jews celebrate Purim. That's, that's the whole thing like that. Now, we end up with a kind of a dis short description. Then Queen Esther, daughter of Abihail with Mordecai the Jew, wrote with a full authority to confirm the second letter about Purim. He sent letters to all the Jews to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus, namely words of peace and truth, to establish these days of Purim at their appointed times, just as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had established for them, and just as they had established for themselves and for their descendants with instructions for their times of fasting and lamentations, the command of Esther established these customs for Purim as written in this book. And so it kind of gives the reason Esther's in the Bible for Jews. It establishes a fourth annual feast, which is still celebrated by Jews today. From what I, what I understand and what I've observed, Purim is, is kind of the rowdiest of the Jewish holidays. Um, it's kind of a combination of Halloween and Christmas, uh, Kids dress up in costumes. Often, often adults dress up in costumes. Uh, they will have a, often have a day of fasting to commemorate Esther's fast the day before Purim. Then they'll have a big feast afterwards with lots of um, adult beverages. And it's just a big party. They, twice during, during the feast, they will read through the whole story aloud of Esther and every time Haman's name comes up, everybody yells and cheers because the whole point is that nobody can hear the name of Haman. We are going to drown out Haman's name. So it's, a, it's, it's, quite, a, it's quite a scripture reading there. Gives gifts to each other. Uh, they give gifts to what you're supposed to give to one poor person. And, and that's kind of how the, the, whole, the whole Feast of Purim starts. Now, why do they call it Purim? It's, it's really kind of tongue-in-cheek. Because it's named after the Persian word for lots, to cast dice. Because it seems that just by chance, this particular day was selected by Haman to exterminate the whole Jewish race. And yet, Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. And so by calling it Purim, it is basically saying, 
We are not ruled by chance. We are not ruled by luck or by fate. But there is a God in heaven who controls everything, who works everything according to his purpose. And we are in his hands, and he will protect his people as he did in Persia during the days of Mordecai and Esther. Let's finish up the story, and then we'll talk about how it applies. Now, King Ahasuerus laid tribute on the land and on the coastlands of the sea, and all the accomplishments of his authority and strength, and the full account of the greatness of Mordecai, to which the king advanced him. Are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? You can go down to the library and look that up, I think. For Mordecai, the Jew, was second only to King Ahasuerus and great among the Jews and in favor with his many kinsmen, one who sought the good of his people and one who spoke for the welfare of his whole nation. Purim is a celebration of the sovereignty of God. When we talk about God's sovereignty, we're talking about God's control, that God is Lord over his whole creation and nothing happens by chance. Nothing happens outside of his purpose. He ultimately controls everything. And, and so that got me to thinking, well, we don't celebrate Purim because we're not Jewish. So how do we celebrate the sovereignty of God? Because I'm convinced nothing will change your life more than believing that God is sovereign. Believing there is no such thing as luck our chance, but God has ordained your steps. I read this week, somebody said that if your theology doesn't become your biography, your theology is worthless. If what I believe about God doesn't shape the way I live my life, then I really don't believe it. So if I believe that God is sovereign, if I believe that there are no accidents, that everything that happens to me comes from the hand of a sovereign, loving God, how will that change the way I live? Are you with me here? And, and for me, I'm just, going, I'm just being personal here. For me, I came up with three ways, if I really believe that God is sovereign, how this will change my life. And I want to share those with you today. First, if I believe that God is sovereign, I will be thankful rather than resentful. I'll be thankful rather than resentful. This year, I begin to see that one of the best ways to tell how healthy I am spiritually at this moment is 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. How am I doing spiritually? Well, am I always rejoicing? Am I praying about everything? And am I giving thanks to God no matter what happens to me? I am not by nature a grateful person. When good things happen, I credit them to me. It's either because I made a smart choice or I just deserve to have these kind of things happen to me. And when bad things happen, I get very irritated. 
I get mad, or I get depressed, or I get fearful. So how can I possibly give thanks for everything, for the bad things as well as the good things? How can I go through life constantly rejoicing, constantly praying, and constantly thanking? Thank you for that guy that just cut me off. Thank you for that unexpected bill. Thank you that the bank lost the check. How, how do you do that? You have to believe God is sovereign and that God is knowing, knows what he's doing. Look what uh, Proverbs says. God has made everything for his purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. God created Haman. And what Haman meant for evil, God used for good. That's what believing in the sovereignty of God means. It means that I believe there is no, nothing purposeless that everything, God has a purpose for everything, good things, bad things, indifferent things, they're all contributing to his good purpose in my life. That's why I can thank God whenever happens because I know God is using this for good. It may not be good in itself, but God is going to use it for good. Isn't that what Romans 8.28 says? And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. Do you believe that? Careful. Do you really believe that? Because if I really believe that, I'm not going to get mad when things don't go my way. I'm not going to be intimidated when life seems to come crashing in. I'm going to say, thank you, Lord. Because I know you're going to make good from this that couldn't happen otherwise. I have, I've not been grateful enough for the good health God has blessed me with um, again, I thought I deserved it. And, uh, but in the last few years, I've, like many of you, as you get older, started to experience some weird health problems. And uh, went through a couple of years where I had uh, pretty regular kidney stone attacks. And uh, if you've ever had a kidney stone attack, they're the worst pain you can experience. They're just awful. And uh, since I kept continuing to have them, the doc check, checked me out and said, uh, I think your parathyroid isn't working. And I didn't know I had a parathyroid. But apparently the parathyroid is this little gland in your neck and it has one job. And that is regulating calcium. So they checked out my parathyroid and sure enough there was a tumor on it. So I had to go into surgery and, and the good news was they got the tumor out. The bad news was while the doctor was fooling around there, he nicked my vocal cord and killed one of my vocal cords. So I've had one vocal cord ever since and so have not been able to speak with the same volume and ability, which is hard when you make your living talking. Uh, and so a lot of times I, I'll be in a restaurant with a group of people and I just can't talk because nobody's going to hear me. Most people, huh? What? And stuff like that. So why does that happen? And then after that, I began having these episodes which the doctors thought were many strokes, TIAs, and I'd have to go to the, the hospital and they would check me all out and couldn't find any evidence of a stroke but gave me medications for strokes anyway. And I was on that. Finally, I had a big one, and, and I probably told you about this, but I, I just, I suddenly found I couldn't remember anybody's name. I couldn't remember my wife's name. I knew she was my wife, but I couldn't remember my wife's name, my kid's name, or my grandkid's name. So Lori takes me to the emergency room, 
And they pumped me full of drugs and did every possible test because they thought I was having a major stroke. And I don't remember anything that happened during that time. I just remember waking up in the hospital. The good news was I didn't have a stroke. The bad news is they don't know what happened to me. They just said, you have a seizure of unknown origin. Well, thanks. That's real helpful. And so they put me on drugs for that and, and uh, took my license away for six months because if you have a seizure, you can't drive. So I became very uh, familiar with Uber um, during that time and uh, it changed my lifestyle quite a bit and stuff like that. And, and even since then, since I've been taking drugs, I still have these little episodes where I can't remember names for a little while or one of my eyes doesn't work right or stuff like that. You know, and you say, Why is God doing that? God's sovereign. That can't happen apart from him, right? Well, that's why Hebrews 12 is so helpful to me. The writer of Hebrews says all discipline, and, and the word discipline there means training. It, it's the kind of training a coach gives an athlete or a parent gives a child. It is to, to develop you in areas you could not be developed otherwise. It is to strengthen weak areas. It is to correct problems. All training, and he's talking about suffering here, all, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. I mean, if it's, if it's not hard, it's not discipline. Got it? Easy stuff does not change your life. Agreed? Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. That word trained is a very interesting word. It's, it's the uh, Greek word we get our word gymnasium from. It's the place where athletes were trained. And the way that Greek coaches would train the athletes is they would look at their naked body and look at their musculature and see the weak parts of their body. And then they would prescribe a regimen of training to strengthen those weak parts. And, and that's the point the writer of Hebrews is saying. The hard things you're going through is to train the weak parts of you. It's to, to take away the things that keep you from experiencing peace, keep you from experiencing joy. It, it, it takes the sin in us and burns it away with the fire of affliction. And that's why I can thank God for whatever happens to me, for these physical maladies, because I see they are doing, accomplishing in me what cannot be accomplished otherwise. That's why I can give thanks. That's why I don't have to resent them. That for one thing, I, my happiness is no longer tied to my physical health. My, my happiness is tied to the one who lives in my body, not to the condition of my body. Does that make sense? I want to stop for a minute, and I want you to pray. And I want you to think about, what am I resenting right now? And then by faith, thank God for it and for the way he's going to be using that for your good if you will just accept the training. Let's pray.
Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. Amen. Second, here's a second way that I think the so- believing in the sovereignty of God at least changes my life. Um, it's, you will be courageous rather than fearful. When Mordecai hears of Haman's decree, he gets word to Esther and says, you are in a position to help us. Go to the king. And Esther replies, I cannot go to the king. It is the death penalty for anyone to go to the king who is not invited. And Haman replies, God will deliver the Jews. But if you do not cooperate, you will perish. Haman replaces one fear with a greater fear. And so Esther says, okay, I'll do it. And if I perish, I perish. I would rather die doing God's will than die for not doing it. Fear can only be defeated by a greater fear. We fear people too much because we fear God too little. Isn't that what Jesus says in Luke 12? I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. Well, I think that's enough. (laughs) But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two cents? Yet, not one of them is forgotten before God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. Jesus is not saying, fear God because he's going to kill you and send you to hell. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that people have a very limited amount of things they can do to you. But God is in total control of your life. Not a single sparrow dies unless God wills it. And you are more valuable to God than many sparrows. The hairs of your head are numbered. God knows us intimately. He is in complete control of our lives. The only reason my heart is beating right now is because God wills it. So what Jesus is saying is, when you're tempted to fear people, compare what you fear with God and see how much greater God is. See, courage is not the absence of feelings of fear, right? Courage is acting even when you feel afraid. And we act when we feel afraid because we believe that God is far bigger than anything I fear. I I grew up in a very controlling, highly critical family. And I grew up keeping my head down. And because it would get knocked off if I I said anything. And so I've grown up with a, a great fear of what people think, 
of what people might say about me and to a lesser extent what people might even do to me. And after I became a Christian, I prayed for years that God would take that fear away from me, and he didn't because he already gave me the solution. Trust me more than what you fear. And when I finally realized that my happiness depends on my relationship with God, not on my relationship with people, that's what freed me from fear. If I had to choose between being hated and despised by every person in the world but having the favor of God, are being loved and adored by every person in the world, but being opposed by God, I'm going to choose the favor of God. Because I know from experience that my happiness is dependent on Him, not upon you. Does that make sense? And so the more I believe that God is in control, that God is greater than anything I fear, the more courage I find to obey Him. It is better to obey him and die in the process than to die because you don't obey him. That's what Esther found. Let's pray. Let's pray again. And I want you to think about anything you fear more than God right now. Think about it. Do I, is there anything I fear more than God? And if there is, confess that as idolatry. You are taking something other than God more seriously than you take God. Say, God, I confess that as sin. Forgive me. Let's pray. Amen. One more. One more thing uh, that I feel like if I really believe God is sovereign, I'm going to expect to be surprised. I'm going to expect to be surprised. I, I really like Proverbs 20, 24. A man's steps are ordained by the Lord. How then can a man understand his way? What's that mean? That means that God's plan is probably different than my plan. Isn't that true? Esther, if I were to, if I were to entitle Esther, I would, I would entitle it, um, I never saw that coming. <laughs> Isn't that true? Because God is at work in this book. I mean, who would think that this little Jewish girl would replace the most powerful woman in the world as queen? And who would think that Haman would be executed on the very gallows he had built for Mordecai? And who would have expected that, that the, the day that all the Jews in the world were to be exterminated by their enemies would be the day they triumph and are exalted over everybody in the empire? Only God can do stuff like that. Only God can. God is the God of surprises, isn't he? So why do we expect life to be predictable? Why do we think we know what's going to happen today? It's because I think I'm in control of my day. And I am so focused on my plan 
and what I, I know what's going to happen. This is what I plan to do this. I plan to do this. I, plan. I am completely blind to what God is doing. And so I miss so many opportunities. I was, uh, had an early morning swim last Saturday. Um, and I love swimming early on Saturdays because I have the whole pool to myself. And that tells you something about me. Uh, <laughs> I not only want my own lane. <laughs> anyway, I came into the locker room there, and I was surprised there was somebody else there. It was a friend of mine who comes early, and so we're, and, and we said hi to each other and, and stuff like that. And normally, that's what we do. We just kind of, you know, we don't really talk until after we've been in the pool because you're not awake yet. But he, out of character, he says to me, he says, we are so lucky to be able to exercise. And I said, yeah, in my mind, I'm thinking, no, we are so disciplined because we... <laughs> and, and then he said to me, he said, I am so grateful to the universe that we can swim. Now, if you talk to people about spiritual things, that is a, a softball down the middle of a plate. You know, I mean... You know, you can hit, I should have, what I should have said is, well, I'm grateful to the creator of the universe for, for blessing me, because I, I don't owe the universe anything, but I do owe him my life. What did I say? Nothing, because <laughs> I thought of that an hour later, because, because I wasn't expecting God to be up at 6 a.m., I thought he'd be having his coffee. I don't think, I don't think, you know, it's, I'm not on. I'm not on. on I'm not expecting. And, and I miss so many opportunities. Does that make sense? We don't expect to be surprised. And so we often aren't. Because we don't expect to see God work. We don't expect God to be moving apart from us if we just have eyes to see. So let's pray one more time. And I, here's what I want you to pray. God, I'm available. Give me eyes to see the opportunities to do good today that you give me. Let's pray. Amen. The story of Esther is a story that appears many, many times in the Bible of God delivering his people from their enemies. Haman was not the greatest enemy the Jews ever faced. And people are not our greatest enemies. Even Satan and his demons are not our greatest enemies. You know who our greatest enemy is? Sin. The sin that lives inside of each one of us. Because that sin is going to kill your body and send your soul to hell. And we are born slaves of that sin. But God saves us from that enemy too. Jesus comes, a human being, to save us from what we cannot save ourselves from.
He lives the life we fail to live so that God can credit us as a gift with his perfect record. He dies the death we deserve to die, bearing the punishment for sin in his body on the cross so that God can pardon us. He rises from the dead, defeating death once and for all so that he can give eternal life to everyone who puts their faith in him. He offers us salvation from the greatest enemy in the universe, our own sin. He offers it as a gift. All you have to say is, I want it. I believe you're my Savior. I believe you died on the cross. I believe you rose from the dead. Come into my life. Make me the person you want me to be. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the great story of Esther. Thank you for the reminder that you are our strength. You are our rock, our fortress and deliverer, the one who delivers us from our enemies. Help us to be people of faith. We pray in Jesus' name.